Cespedes 0 for 2 in his return. And he drives one deep left field, headed back toward the wall. That ball is out of here! You win it, Cespedes! More than two years on the sidelines. He's back with a home run. And the Mets lead it 1-0 in the seventh. Hi, this is Emily Nyman, and you're listening to Breaking Balls. Welcome to episode 19 of Breaking Balls. I'm your host, Emily Nyman. We're here with my co-host, John Snyder. You can find us on Twitter, at BreakBallsPod. And if you're feeling brassy, you can give the Breaking Balls hotline a call, 631-820-7377. We are now into week two of Major League Baseball. We had two teams go down with an outbreak, Marlins and the Phillies, and they're both back in action. But unfortunately, we had the Cardinals go down this week with a bit of an outbreak because some of their players supposedly went to a casino, and they're out for the next few days. So schedule's kind of a mess, but they're trying to make it work. Major League Baseball and the Players Association, they agreed to some tighter rules and some more strict rules just to keep players safe or to try to keep them safe and to see if we can make it through 60. We had some opt-outs as well, Lorenzo Cain and Joanna Cespedes, who had just come back after almost two full years on the DL, came back. And as you heard in our opening, he hit the game winner on opening day versus the Braves. It was an amazing home run. It was a great call, as you heard, from Gary Cohen. And I even called him to be the NL Comeback Player of the Year because of that one swing. I've made a huge mistake. And in less than a week's time, he had not showing up to a game supposedly, and opted out. So with that being said, it's a perfect opportunity to welcome my co-host, John. John, how are you this week? Meet the Mets, meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets... <laughs> are you serious? That's how you're going to... Yeah, okay. Uh, no, I'm doing a little all right. Pomp and circumstance than usual just because I had such a great lead in. Are you going to ask me how I'm doing right after how Cespedes left? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine, I guess. Uh, no, you know, it's it's always a roller coaster being a Mets fan, and I'm I'm just impressed on how much of a roller coaster they fit into the first two weeks. It's almost, yeah, it's impressive if you think about it. Well, usually they start off super hot in like the first two weeks of every season. So now that that's not happening, they're like, quick, do something. The Wilpons are like, uh, just uh, say that Cespedes is missing. They're like, sir, he opted out. They're like, no, just run with it. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's it's the first week, you know, because of the shortened season. That one game where we actually gave DeGrom a run of support, uh, that was our hot start. And then on to the next month, you know, in the next game. They're going to draw out that one game into the entire 2020 highlight video, well, the DVD for the season. Well, I told you, I have this theory. April uh, April was the first game, which we won on a DeGrom start. May was the second game, which fell apart at the end. And then June was the third game, which was an unmitigated disaster the entire time. We got blown out by the Braves. And now you don't even have Cespedes. And now we don't have Cespedes, yeah. So I, I work on Sundays, so I wasn't actually watching the game when all this went down, but I follow as close as I can on my phone, you know, the MLB app, Twitter, right. whatever. And uh, so I was aware that the game started at one, and then just I'm on a break, and I just get this text in, and it just says, Yoenis Cespedes is missing. It's like they haven't been able to contact him, they don't know where he is. Which is so weird because it's the middle of the game. I mean, first off, is he dead? Like, what happened? PR 101, if your statement leaves people asking, did this guy die? You fucked up the statement. And they definitely did. Uh, an hour later, it came out like, oh, no, yeah, we know he's fine. Which, okay, was omitted from the first message. Why? I don't know. And when it was all said and done, it turned out that Cespedes had decided to opt out. He had his agent inform the team and he just cleared out of his hotel room. Now, the Mets are playing dumb on this. They're saying, oh, we had no idea. But reports are coming out that apparently Cespedes said goodbye to some players on Saturday. Like I know Nimmo did an interview where he was like, yeah, I'm hearing two different sides to this story. We don't really know what's going on. It just speaks to the chaos that's you know ever present in the Mets clubhouse. And this is certainly no exception. And nothing showed their hand quite like saying he's missing. They don't know where he is. They can't get a hold of him. And then being like, but we know he's okay. It's like that right there says that they knew where he was. They knew that he opted out, in my opinion anyway. They knew he opted out. They wanted him 
to go down in flames. They wanted his legacy to be tarnished with this moment because the Mets were feeling jilted because they burned bridges like a, a scorned lover. <laughs> and they put it out there. And then the reaction was not immediately like, oh, Cespedes, he's a, a scumbag, blah, blah, blah. It was worrying about his safety. And I'm sure they were getting phone calls from people who are not fans, but maybe friends or families members of his that are like, what do you mean he's missing? And all of a sudden it was like, whoa, whoa, well, we know that he's safe. And it's like, OK, so then he's not missing because if he were, you would not know that. You wouldn't know that he was safe because he's missing. Right, yeah. What's the purpose of that beyond to try and make him look bad, to try and shame him, you know, drag his name through the mud, whatever? It's just a continuation of the Mets' pattern of they can't just release a player. They have to make sure that the door hits him on the ass on the way out. I mean, in some ways, like, you remember, I mean, it was tragic, obviously, you know, what happened with David Wright, where, you know, injuries, you know, his right. back didn't allow him to continue his career. In some ways, the Mets are so fucked up on stuff like this. It's like, it's almost better that that happened because we never got to see Wright get screwed over by the Mets and get traded to some garbage team, you know? And end his career in yeah, San Diego yeah, his, or some shit. His, right. His injury strangely allowed him to end his career with dignity with the Mets, which a lot of players don't get to do, as evidenced by this. Which is pretty funny, though, that David Wright, because he was so... The only thing that saved him from a catastrophic end like this with the Mets was the fact that he was so beloved that yes. Cespedes didn't have enough time that he came out of the gate hot when he, they got him in the middle of 2015 and he carried the team on his back to the World Series and had a hot start in 2016 I think too and had a great season but then he was befallen by injury after injury right. and doing stupid things when he was supposed to be recovering that the fans already had a bad taste in their mouth. And then that home run sort of was like a little interjection of like 2015 was like, oh shit, he's back. And he just hit this home run as a DH. This is amazing. He then opts out. And because the word on the street is that he has, this isn't a word on the street. This is a fact. His mother is in bad health and she's high risk. So he was opting out. But the word on the street is that he had said he's opting out because he did not feel that the Mets were taking the procedures seriously enough to keep him safe and to keep the players safe so i think that the mets were like well we're we know he's gonna say this so let's get out in the papers first and try to smear him through the mud and they did and it worked fans fell for it every time owner good player bad for some reason even though the owners are constantly doing fucked up shit like this yeah and i mean uh, it's so messed up because the worst you can really say about cespedes with this is that he handles the actual exit maybe a little unprofessionally you know with the with the no call no show okay but that's the worst you could say about him. You know, they're they're trying to latch on to all this stuff of, oh, well, he wasn't going to get the incentives in his contract. I was reading a report that said that even with some reduced at-bats, which is what apparently they're saying he was concerned about, uh, even with the reduced at-bats, he was only in line to miss, like, his max incentives, which was a, a really, I think it was actually a larger amount than he's going to wind up getting paid now that he's opt out, like the difference between the max incentives and what he was still in line for. So that story doesn't really hold water. And well, to be honest, if I could if I could interrupt quick, please. Now that contract in particular, Brody Van Wagen in the GM, he was Cespedes' agent at the time and negotiated that contract. That contract, which was very tempting to the Wilpons, in that it was heavy in incentives as far as the payouts were huge with his incentives. Well, sort of like because he was already injured. So I think that Cespedes' thing is that now that Van Wagenen is on the front office end, he feels, and I think rightly so they were trying to manipulate that service time because if you're Cespedes, the same thing with the players as far as wanting the 100% proration, Cespedes is thinking, if I'm not going to reach these incentives and I'm not going to reach it because of the Mets withholding innings and at-bats from me because they're not doing shit, the team's losing, so whatever, we can keep Cespedes on the bench, it doesn't matter. He's thinking, it's not worth it to me because they're not doing the right thing with the procedures to keep COVID-19 out of the clubhouse. So that plus the fact that they're not playing me and I'm not going to reach those max incentives, it's not worth it to me financially or for my health and my family's health to play. Oh, yeah, no, no. I, I should clarify. When I say it doesn't hold water, I don't mean that the Mets weren't trying to screw him in that way. I mean that it doesn't hold water that that's the only reason he left. He left because it was that on top of what? And then you're going to make me risk my health with at-risk family members? Like, Cespedes, if you if you look into his backstory, he's got an amazing story. He's, by all accounts, uh, an amazing human being. And just to see him get dragged through like this, it, it, it's so frustrating. It's so disingenuous. And at the same time, it's almost par for the course. You know, like I said, they can't help themselves. But 
I don't know if they're trying to save face or what, or make themselves look better somehow. Like, the fish stinks from the head down, right? It's it's the Wilpons, man. They've just built this culture that right. is, uh, it, it's, it's disgusting sometimes. And as far as all of the headlines and everything with all the shill writers, he's disgruntled oh. and, and this, that, and the other thing. I would be disgruntled too. After everything we just pointed yeah. out, the Wilpons, they have a lousy work environment. Players are never really happy there. There's always some bullshit going on. So are we that surprised that the employees, when they're leaving, they're leaving in a maybe disrespectful manner as far as you're concerned? And the funny thing is that I feel like a, a lot of people, you know, they hate their boss. That's like a, a common theme, right? <laughs> right. So you have all these people that hate their boss and they understand that and, and they understand like, oh, my boss is a jerk and we're the working class and they're the assholes. But then all of a sudden with pro sports, it's like, hmm, no, this this guy, the worker, he's the asshole. The boss is the good guy. But we've gotten into that a thousand times. So we'll spare everybody that conversation for the hundredth <laughs> our, time. But our gift to you. Yeah, you're welcome, everybody. So we're going to travel uptown to the Bronx and talk about a great New York team. Why? A team that is just performing exactly as we all wanted. It's been great to see them out there. They're, I think they're 9-3 and three right now. They're in first place. They're not even firing on all cylinders. That's a crazy thing. I was just about to say that cliche line, they're firing on all cylinders. They're not. Glaber isn't hitting. Sanchez isn't hitting. And yet they're still able to be in first place and, and to win games. And still the, the saying from last year, because they had a record breaking number of injuries was next man up. And this team has so much depth that it's, it's a pleasure to watch. I say it all the time. Judge is on an absolute tear. He's got a weighted runs created plus of, of over two thirty. He's already amassed a 0.9 in F even if he regresses slightly, which obviously that's bound to happen because I think he's on pace right now to hit 42 home runs in 60 games. Which uh, yeah, he may regress a little bit from that. Maybe, <laughs> which would be sick, but it's it's just been awesome. He hit five in five games the other day. He, I think he's got up to seven now in, in 11 games that he's played in. It's just this team is is ready and raring to go. And because I know that my dear cousin John here, his father is a, a Yankee fan of sorts, and after everything we just spoke about the Mets and that we've touched on each week, I, I just need to know, John, how did you even end up a Mets fan? <laughs> how did I end up a Mets fan? All right. Uh, well, yeah, that is the starting point. My dad is a Yankees fan, but he's a pretty casual Yankees fan. In, in the bigger picture, both sides of my family, both the side that we share um, and my mom's side is mostly Mets fans. But yeah, so my dad is a casual Yankees fan, you know, but he was at one point a casual Mets fan. You know, when, when they when they won the series in 1969, he was allowed to have a second ice cream pop that night, which, you know, it's pretty good incentive right there. That would um, be a good incentive for me now. I'm 34. Uh, yeah, right. I'd be like, all right. <laughs> I got a root for who? But yeah, so but the way that he put it to me was... You know, uh, that was great. But then, like, in the 70s, the Mets started getting rid of some of their players, like, you know, Rusty Staub and Tom Seaver. And then the Yankees start getting, you know, Thurman Munson, Goose Gossage, Reggie Jackson, you know, these, these late 70s Yankee stars. And it was the place to be. And, uh, you know, he just gravitated towards them, and, and he was sold from that point on. So my very first game was a Yankees game in 1992. I went to see the Yankees beat the Royals when I was – I don't even know if I was four yet. I was turning four that year. But after that, it was all Mets games. I went to a bunch of games at Shea every year after that because, you know, we lived out on Long Island. It was the 90s. Queens was a little bit easier and maybe a nicer area than the Bronx. Tickets were easier to come by. I don't even know if they were necessarily cheaper. It was just easier to get to Mets games. So we went to them all the time. Um, I was a baseball fan first, right? That's how I was raised, was I just loved the game. I played in Little League. I would watch Yankees games and Mets games. I guess more so Yankees games back then on TV because of my dad. But I remember in 96, I was rooting for the Yankees to win with him. But as the 90s wore on, and you know, I still didn't have a, a team per se, uh, and the Yankees kept winning, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a little part of me that's like gravitated towards the underdog nature of the Mets. I don't know, man. Like, yeah, they don't have the success of the Yankees, but the, the Mets are just, they're super interesting. There's always something going on with the Mets, and it's just, 
I, I'm, I'm in too deep at this point, man. You know, I realized that I and don't get me wrong. It wasn't some period of like, I am now a Mets fan. It just as those years went on, you know, by the Subway Series in 2000, I was I was on board with the Mets and I've been since. And this is something I'm going to get made fun of for saying. But it is true that when you have a team that struggles like the Mets does on the occasions that they're good, it's that much sweeter. Like it, it, it really, truly is in a way that I'm not saying it's hard for a Yankees fan to understand because obviously, you know, you, you guys have had struggles too. Every team does. But something about the Mets when they're good, man, it's, it's hard to quantify, but it's I'm in too deep at this point, you know? I don't know how you guys do it. I mean, it's all relative because I, I'm thinking the same thing. You're, you're saying that over here. I'm like, well, the Yankees, you know, when they, they've struggled and then when they win, it feels great. But it's all relative where I don't I feel like the Mets fans feel that way about like, you know, struggling, struggling and then, you know, making it to the wild card game. And even if you lose, it was a great run where the Yankees, it's like if we didn't win the World Series, this season was a piece of shit and it doesn't matter. So I feel like the it's relative to the team that you like. No, it is. And you know what? Like for all the front office bullshit and, you know, whatever's going on behind the scenes at the, you know, that Mets meme where it's like, you know, waking up every morning just for like your daily dose of masochism. And, you know, after the game goes poorly, it's like, oh, I'm never going to watch again. And then you're back there the next day. It's like, well, it's my team, man. You know, there's there's all kinds of shit with it, but I'm I'm, I'm never going to not love watching them play and, and get excited for the games. And I, I guess it's hard for some Yankees fans to understand. And I totally dig that. I get it, but I'll say this, and this is not a slight on anyone. I think in some ways it's harder to be a Mets fan. So like on, on the casual level, I feel like a casual Mets fan is often more of a baseball fan than a casual Yankees fan who might just join on the bandwagon. You know what I mean? It's obviously not an absolute statement, but um, I'll say this. If, if you stick with the Mets for as long as I have, you, you must like something about them and, and the game for sure. Though I, I do have to say, I think that that is something that fans of losing teams say to make themselves feel better. I think that it's always like, oh, well, we're better, you know, people are better fans when because they're sticking with a shitty no, team. No, that's and I'm not like, what oh. I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that in my experience with like the most casual level of fans, I feel like I've had better baseball conversations with some of the super casual Mets fans than super casual Yankees fans. Because I think some of those super casual Yankees fans just want to dunk on everybody else rather than have an actual conversation about baseball. Again, not absolute, but that has been my experience. I do. I agree to a certain extent. But we'll leave that one there because I, I feel like I can't help it. I have to say it. There are a lot of Met fans where I feel like on the opposite end, because I know the kind of Yankee fans that you're talking about, yeah. that there are Met fans and people who will be fans of underdogs just so they could be like the fan of if, if we lose, it doesn't matter. Like, oh, who cares? It's a, they, they lost. But your team lost and your team's supposed to be great. Like to be that sort of like, eh, like stick in the side fan where they are in this win win situation, because if they win, great. But if this team loses, I can't be you can't get in my face about it. They always lose. You know what it's a version of? You know how we've talked or I, rather I've talked about my theory about how some Yankee fans like being unique. I think that's the opposite end of that spectrum. Is there some fans that their way of being unique is let me pick a shitty team. So I always have something to complain about. And then when they lose, I can pretend like it doesn't bother me and I'll point to your good team losing. Yeah, no, that's I don't subscribe to that. And, you know, maybe there's some straight up actual masochist Mets fans. that That's why they do it. But I'm, I'm unable to relate to those people. <laughs> I do like here on Breaking Balls, we like to separate ourselves from the herd in at least once an episode. That is correct. Right, yeah, yeah. Emily's not a bad Yankees fan. I'm not a bad Mets fan. They're out there, people, but we're not those. And speaking of the Mets and the Brave series where that debacle started with Cespedes, one thing that was really odd to me, and it happened, I noticed it right before that news broke, was the fact that the mascots are at these games. And <laughs> it was a really sad sight because it was a day game and the Braves have the cardboard cutouts in their stands. At one point, they showed blooper the mascot and he was facing the cardboard cutout crowd and i was like this is the saddest thing i've ever seen in my life and then 30 seconds later they were like cesspitus missing i was like this fucking season is whack we have this mascot performing for an empty crowd and it got john and i thinking because then later on we watched another game or actually not later on this was a few days later because it was still braves mets and blooper was standing on top of the dugout painting just literally had a real palette of paint in his arm and was painting stuff on an easel on a canvas. And it got us thinking, who is this for? Who? Who is that for? It was a night game. It was like 9 p.m. when this thing was doing that. I guess it's an elephant. I'm not even sure. But 
it was such an odd thing that I had gotten over the crowd noise. I'd gotten over the cardboard cutouts. I'd gotten over all these strange things happening. But for whatever reason, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Who was that for? Kids? Us at home to leave us puzzling and, and questioning this weird move that they're literally paying this guy to do this? Like, I don't know, John. Please, you have to pick up the rope on this one because I'm literally at a loss for words. And we all know that that is a rare occurrence. I am shocked. Shocked. Well, not that shocked. All right. Well, let me start with you. You know me. You know that I, I love mascots, right? I, I think they they're, are, they're they so right stupid and interesting. I love it. So whenever there's a mascot on TV, I am laser focused on what that mascot is doing, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, it's for so that, you basically, it, it's right. So the answer to your question is, it's for me. Uh, <laughs> no, but <laughs> but seriously, you're right. Who is it for, right? Because the whole point of the mascot is to pump up the crowd, right? So there's no crowd. Why it, it adds into that, like, oh, let's add another sense of normalcy that just makes things look weird and doesn't actually add any normalcy to the proceedings. Then I should say that blooper painting wasn't even my favorite mascot moment from this season. As much as I hate the Phillies, the Philly fanatic, he's a good one when it comes to mascots. And uh, there was one game where he was just like dicking around behind home plate while the uh, the other team was uh, pitching. You know, normally, like you're used to, there's a certain amount of jostling, you know, going on with the crowd behind you. We've become a little more used to the cardboard cutouts just like sitting there still, right? And then you got the Philly fanatic going through the crowd, like going for high fives and like trying to like distract the pitcher and shit. And it culminated in, I'm pretty sure they were playing the Marlins. I could have the teams wrong. But anyway, so he goes and there was a cutout of a Marlins fan in the park. And the Philly fanatic takes out these cans of shaving cream and just absolutely douses this cardboard cutout of this Marlins fan with shaving cream in the middle of the game. And that came back to, who is that for? Like, there's nobody there to react to it, right? Are you imagining, like, people, like, getting up off their couches in Philadelphia? You're like, oh, fuck yeah, yeah, stick it to that Marlins fan. I don't get it. Mascots I mean, we're are already about it. Oh, I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe maybe it's working exactly as planned. And the fact that we're talking about and laughing at all this stuff is exactly what they wanted. But mascots are already like a borderline. Like, how excited do they really get crowd? They're for kids, right? And so now when there's nobody in the ballpark, no kids, no nothing, let's have the mascots more active than ever. And since there's nothing else going on besides the game in the stands, the mascot's always going to be on camera doing this weird shit. And... Uh, well, I both want to continue this segment of who is it for, but I'm also going to institute a little personal mascot watch, and I'm going to be like on the lookout for them doing weird stuff because that's just going to add to this. Who is this for? The Yankees have been playing the Phillies in Citizen Bank, so their right. mascot, obviously the famed Philly fanatic that we're mentioning, he was out in the outfield seats, and there was it was a cardboard cutout of one of the players. I'm not sure who. But something happened good for the Phillies, and the fanatic turned around to the cardboard cutout wrapped its arms around it and like semi dipped it and then just pressed its weird open mouth against the face of the cardboard <laughs> cutout and like kissed it like it was the sailor kissing the nurse on uh, VJ day in 1945. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. That's amazing. As John mentioned, he's going to keep an eye on the mascots. And as we usually do, since we are not shy from sharing our gripes about major league baseball on here, we're going to be keeping our eye on things that make us question who is this for? So if you have any that you're noticing any games, who do you think this is for? You're not. It's not for you. So who could it possibly be for? Call us or text us 631-820-7377. And speaking of the Breaking Balls hotline, we got a ton of text messages and voicemails this week. So we're just going to get right into it. Hi. My name is Frankie. I was verbally abused by one of your staff members this week when I simply asked for you guys to discuss how Aaron Judge is God, and Peter Pablo, or whatever his name is, the polar bear guy, how he's the laughing stock of New York. I was met with horrible remarks. Hopefully this gets to management. We can straighten this out. Episode 18 coming. Well, that is certainly our first complaint we've ever received. And as you all heard, the complaint came in a little late last Thursday, they were hoping that it was going to get in on episode 18, and it didn't. So here we are in episode 19. And, I mean, John, what do you have to say for yourself? How dare you speak ill of Aaron Judge? Well, okay, so that's that's a total misframing of what happened, just for the record. I didn't speak ill of Aaron Judge when he asked about doing the comparison for Judge and uh, Alonzo on the show. I said no, because I think those comparisons are inherently stupid. 
And here, I'll say what everyone wants to hear. I think that Aaron Judge is a better player than Pete Alonso. It's that simple. And that's not a bad thing for Pete Alonso. It's like saying, okay, Mike Trout is a better player than Aaron Judge. That's not controversial. And that doesn't take away from Aaron Judge either because nobody is as good a player as Mike Trout right now. And, you know, and most guys are not as good as Aaron Judge right now. And I would say that Pete Alonso is among that. And I don't know, man. I just I just don't get down with those comparisons. I think they're pointless. Like maybe it makes you feel good to get confirmation of how good your guy is. I don't really know who's questioning that. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to sit here and speak for the Mets fan base. I know I'm not. I don't know. In my experience, maybe this is just because I'm mostly ironically in Yankees Twitter as opposed to Mets Twitter. I see more Yankees fans posing that question than Mets fans. And I find it hard to think that any Mets fan that's saying, I love Pete Alonso, but to say that he's a better baseball player than Aaron Judge right now, that seems a little disingenuous and kind of homerish to me. It is homerish. They are saying it. That's where it started. And bottom line there is, John is saying that Aaron Judge is, in fact, the king of New York. Thank you, caller. We appreciate uh, calling no. again. <laughs> and here is voicemail two. Jacob DeGrom is the king of New York. What's going on, guys? This is Will Johansson. Em and John just wanted to say great show last week. Uh, looking forward to this week, as always. But the real reason for my call this time is actually to give a shout-out to the guy who doesn't get shouted out as much, and that's the one and only DJ Bingington. Uh, the tracks last week were fucking fire. Can't wait to hear where you go with next. Again, go Yankees. And, John, you followed me on Twitter, so I'm, I'm not going to give you shit about the, that other team on the other side of the city. So, all right, guys, looking forward to next week. Thank you for calling, Will, and we happen to agree with you. No one is better than our very own DJ Bingington. He makes this show. I mean, John and I like to think that we have pretty good content, but it would be brutal to listen to. If you guys heard our recording and how long it is and how many times we'll have to rework something, and he makes it flow and adds in his little bit of pizzazz and flair and personality. So, Will, you're right on the money with that take. DJ Bingington, we love you. Now let's get into voicemail three. Yeah, hello, this is Coach Duggs. You may know me from my three college football national championships. I uh, just had a quick question uh, for breaking balls. Um, I am in the, I'm in the market for a dog. Um, I'm recently retired. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys knew that or not, but um, I have a lot of free time on my hands and, you know, Hanging out with the family's nice. Uh, my son Dilbert, you know, he's, he's a great young boy, but um, you know, I could really use a dog. So uh, I've been told that I should adopt, not shop. Uh, that's my current situation. I've been talked into that. Um, I do believe that I should adopt, not shop. Uh, my only issue is I'm having trouble uh, finding uh, somewhere to adopt a bulldog puppy. Uh, there's not a lot of people that have bulldog puppies that are just willingly giving them away. Um, so if you have uh, any help uh, with that, I would really appreciate it. Um, I'll go ahead and hang up the call now and, uh, and listen to your answer on the air. Thank you. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored over here at Breaking Balls. Coach Duggs, like he said, three times national champion with Big Cat, Dan Katz from Barstool. And I think he might be a little confused. I know Duggs likes to... Uh, throw back a Bud Light or two. He's been at uh, TMZ's caught him at a uh, supermarket in uh, Louisiana buying like 50 cases of beer. So he may have called the wrong line, but we'll take that call all the same. I'm not sure. John, you, you're into dogs more than I am. So do you have any lead on where he can get a, a bulldog puppy? Oh yeah, no, I, I disagree. I think he called exactly the right show. All right, Coach Dugs. here's what I'm thinking. So first off, Bulldog puppy, I don't know if you want to go down that road. They have a lot of health problems. The flat faces make it difficult for them to breathe. Here's what I think you're going to want to do. If you're looking to adopt, which is the way to go, don't support the puppy mills, adopt. You're going to want to get a retired racing greyhound. These are amazing dogs. You coach dogs have so much experience with athletes, right? With competitors. And that's what these dogs are, right? Once they've the once they've peaked and they can no longer keep up on the track, they need a good home and they need someone who understands them as athletes. And I think that's the direction that you should go. A big misconception, yeah, they're big dogs and they're fast. They don't need a lot of room. They're lazy. They sleep like 20 hours a day. They're they're beautiful, they're impressive. And like I said, I just think that with your pedigree coach, I think that this is the move for you get yourself an adopted racing greyhound i don't know dogs but i agree with john i was going to make some cheesy pun about the university of georgia and them being the bulldogs but what john said is way better get the greyhound <laughs> dogs 
right, voicemail four. Hey, so this is Nick. Um, John, how do you feel that the Miami Marlins have a better record than the New York Mets? And obviously, we saw the seven-inning doubleheader. I I think it's horrible. The Yankees probably could have won that game. What What's your guys' thoughts on Little League Baseball and Major League Baseball? And everybody, listen to this podcast. Nick, thanks for calling. Great question. Um, John, before we get into the seven inning games, how are you feeling about the Marlins having a better record than the Mets? Well, first off, let me just say, I love that. You heard it here first. Listen to this podcast. Um, but I think you're you're phrasing the question not as well as it could be phrased. And the real question is, how do I feel about the Marlins being in first place with a four and one record while the Braves have an eight and four record and are in second place? And uh, I feel pretty okay about it, if I'm being honest with you. Um, I think I said this last week, like I hate the Braves. I hate the Phillies, the Nationals and the Marlins. Eh, it's early. You know, I never root for them to win in a way, you know, against the Mets or like in a way that would hurt the Mets. But uh, if you're going to pick a team to be in first place, that's not the Mets in the NL East. Especially in a kind of like jokey way, like, yeah, hey, we've played like less than half the games of the second place team. But uh, yeah, we're four and one. So we're in first. That's really funny to me. And I get a kick out of it, if I'm being honest with you. And if I can be completely honest with you, they're six and one. I don't know. I hate to be the one to break that news. Are they six and one now? I'm, I, I guess I last looked at the standings a few days ago. I'm not sure what Atlanta is offhand then, but the fact that. I mean, A, that the Marlins are doing that well is kind of funny in and of itself after all the shit that they went through early in the season. But yeah, the fact that they're keeping the Braves and the Phillies out of first, having played that few games, I'm all on board for that. What a diplomatic answer. Yeah, I I like Marlins. I like a little underdog story. That is sort of what I was really excited for the most about a weird season, a short season like this was the, the possibility that teams like that can get hot during these short runs and see what happens. And as far as seven inning games are concerned, I didn't mind it. I didn't care until like the Yankees were then getting the shit kicked out of them. So I was like, ah, whatever. I'm glad this game is going to be over in seven innings. And then, of course, in like the top of the sixth inning, Judge hit like a three run home run. And then they got back in the game. And I was like, okay, now I hate the seven innings. So just like anything this year, do I love it? No. Do I want it to stay this way? No. But it is what it is. I'm just going to take each game as it is. I'm not going to be like back when the games were regular it was better because we can play that game all day and then what'll end up happening you'll end up not enjoying the season that we were all dying for and begging for so i think people have to either make they have to make a decision you either have to not like the season at all and, and just chalk it up and just throw it out or just accept it for what it is we all were dying for it. we wanted it we were we were crying for it, wanting them to make a decision and wanting them to set a date and they did and now they're playing so to then be like, oh, well, now I don't like the things I have to do because everything is so different. It's like, all right, well, what the fuck did you expect? And now the Marlins have a higher winning percentage than the Yankees. Go figure. <laughs> Careful what you wish for is the lesson here, people. No! Thank you for calling, Nick. And let's get into voicemail five. Hey, guys. Emmy, Emmy and Jimmy. How you guys doing? I love the show. Listen every week. I just wanted to know, what's your favorite breakfast sandwich? Go. Great question, Anonymous. My favorite breakfast sandwich is the classic bacon, egg, and cheese, salt, pepper, ketchup, crispy bacon. Can't beat it. What about you, Jimmy? Uh, uh, thanks, Emmy. Uh, my favorite breakfast sandwich, it's a variation on that. I like a uh, sausage, egg, and cheese, SPK, roll or bagel. I'm flexible in that way. But uh, a good bacon, egg, and cheese is a very close second place, I got to say. And as New Yorkers, we know our breakfast sandwiches. And also, sneaky good, if you... Enjoy, especially a runny egg, first of all. It has to be over easy. Oh, and no, no, no. Scrambled. No way. Too dry. Oh, dude, get out of here. And on a croissant, it is, you won't be able to go back, though. That's the thing, people. If you give that a try, you're never going to be able to look at a roll or a bagel with an egg sandwich the same ever again. And let's also note the Dark Horse Hangover, which is the Hungry Man, where they put like three eggs and ham and sausage and bacon. Then you're in business. True New Yorkers. <laughs> Thank you for that call, and let's get right into voicemail six. It's Michael, the food guy behind the dish, ball nine. Miss T this week joining. Uh, keep seeing the Mike Piazza Baywatch clip on the timeline. Reminds me of the Yankees Seinfeld clips. Our question is, what current baseball player or players and show do you want to see collab? 
had an important message from Mrs. T. Wear a mask because we're out of bed and you're also be in the hallway. Later. Second time caller, Michael, and adding his now first time caller, Mrs. T, his wife. Uh, that's a great question. It's tough to say because if I can be completely honest, I am the queen of watching like the same shows and movies that I already know I like over and over again. So I'm not up that much on new shows. But what came to mind first, and this may be a layup, is having Judge on Brooklyn Nine-Nine as a judge. <laughs> That's actually really clever. Or Law and Order. I, I first wanted to say Law and Order, but the original one isn't around anymore. And then I was like, I guess SVU, but that's a little dark for Breaking Ball. So <laughs> I'll stick with Brooklyn Nine-Nine. See, I thought based on your viewing habits, the question for you was, which MLB player do you most want to see cameo on American Dad? Um, but I was going to say that. <laughs> but for me, if you had asked me this a couple weeks ago, I definitely would have had to think hard about it. But what came to me immediately after what happened last week I want to see Joe Kelly on Survivor, man. Not just because he's definitely going to win, but just for the facial expressions he makes at the council meetings as he's like screwing over other people. Like, oh man, I think that would be awesome. Joe Kelly on Survivor. Book that shit. The tribe has spoken. Time for you to go. He just, he beans Jeff Profs, the host with a, a fucking... Yeah, the coconut Tiki? just whips it up. <laughs> And then, then stares him down. Joe Kelly gets suspended from Survivor for eight days. Yeah, but he appeals, so he's still on the island. Michael and Mrs. T, thank you so much for the call. And Mrs. T, great message. We agree here on Breaking Balls. Wear a mask, people. It's not hard. No one wants to do it, but we're all doing it because we're all in this together. I feel like I'm like uh, Scruffy from uh, Futurama. Second. Seconded. And now we'll get into our last call. It's Steve Cifuentes at Cifio2 with his quest of the week. What's up, Emster? Uh, and John, how you doing? It's uh, at Cifio2 on Twitter. Trying to throw in my question of the week. Trying to get a regular spot here for you guys. Um, question I'm thinking about this year or right now. Best free agent signing for your team. Uh, Yankees always spend big money, but they've had a lot of busts. But a lot of good ones. Um, Mine, to me, is just because this contract never got bad. Um, I love CeCe Sabathia, love A-Rod, but the end of those contracts, you were paying a lot of money for less production. But I think the best contract they've signed is Mike Messina. Um, Mets, don't know if you consider Piazza free agent signing because they traded for him and then signed him. I mean, obviously, if it is considered free agency, you'd go Piazza. But I think even though the Mets fans hate the bat on the shoulder, I think Beltran may have been their best signing, where, again, the contract never got bad. So what do you guys think? Um, I know there's a ton of free agents that you sign 10-year deals, and at the end, the contract's terrible. Um, Guys that just signed a good contract that you got the most value out of. Let me know what you guys think. Have a good week. Bye. That is actually a pretty tough question, because no surprises here. My knee-jerk was to want to say A-Rod, but... The best contract, I, I'm obviously he still won a World Series here in that second contract, and, and he hit a bunch of milestones. But his first time around with the Yankees when he came in 2004, that was the real where they got their money's worth. But he was traded for, so it's not a real free agent signing. So I think I'm going to have to go with Hideki Matsui because, Steve, you're right. I think Messina is a great choice, and, and I think that that's probably at the top of the list. But I think next is, is Matsui. He... You know, he hit 140 home runs for the Yankees and he won a World Series. He was a World Series MVP and he was just a he was a great player. I think he was two seasons maybe uh, marred with injury. But besides that, he he came here and and he was just solid all around and just a a great player for the Yankees. And and they didn't hold on to him for too long that after the World Series year, they didn't do the Yankee thing and do the nostalgia signing. They sort of let him go out to free agency and then he went elsewhere and ended his career uh, a year or two after that. So. It really worked out for the Yankees. He came over here and he did a good job. Uh, Steve, I think I think you you nailed it exactly with the Mets. Um, if I'm remembering this correctly, I think Piazza would count because didn't he get traded? They traded for him in the '98 season, but then I think after that he was a free agent again, and then they re-signed him. So I guess, I guess it depends how technical you want to get. But yeah, Piazza would be the gold standard. And Beltran, too. I, I have to say about Beltran, he gets such a bad rap for that one pitch. But, like, 
A, the Mets do not get to that point in 2006 without Beltran. He was the MVP of that playoffs for them. And second, look at that pitch from Adam Wainwright, man. That was an up-and-coming Adam Wainwright, one of the most beautiful curveballs you've ever seen. Like, you can't tell me that you would have swung at that, you know? Like, not you specifically, just in general. Like, it, it was such a tough pitch in a tough situation, and he had had such a good postseason. And it comes down to optics, and that's the lasting optics that a lot of Mets fans have. So, like, oh, you know, fuck Beltran. You're crazy, man. you got to think objectively about that. So, yeah, those those are the top two. Definitely Piazza on top and Beltran if you want to get technical for, like, a pure free agent signing. And we all kind of hope that would be Ioannis after what happened in 2015. But uh, you want to talk about a contract not looking good at the end. Yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of those to choose from for the Mets and also for the Yankees, if I can be fair. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for calling in. We really appreciate it. We have a lot of fun with these calls. So if anyone listening wants to get in on the action, call the Breaking Balls hotline. Number is 631-820-7377. Now, without further ado, we're going to get into our world-famous top three. So for this week, we figured that we would kind of stick with the, the common theme of the episode. This is a top three that is near and dear to my heart everyone listening's heart and my co-host's heart as well. That's so Mets top three. John and I, we did the research and we looked into the Mets history. Seeing as how the Cespedes debacle just went down, we figured we'd go through the books and try to find the most Mets moments in their illustrious history. So well, maybe you did research. I just had to pick which freaking one I wanted to go with. <laughs> that's true. I mean, or it was less research and more like a supermarket sweep sort of thing where I, just, I was I'm like, saying. what do I pick? Like there was a shortage. Come on. I was just going through the aisles and just dumping horrible Mets stories into my cart and just <laughs> running through. <laughs> so I'll kick this one off. My number three is Matt Harvey in 2017. He, like Cespedes, didn't show up to the game. He sort of was stumbling out of the gate. He had some great success in the past, and then his relationship with the Mets was sort of turning sour at this point. And he didn't show up, but the Mets seemed to not make a spectacle of it. They made an excuse for it, said he was sick or something, but at those years, we all knew that he was out partying and doing blow and whatever it was he was doing as the dark night around Gotham. So <laughs> that was one of my favorites. Yeah, that comparison between how they handled that and Harvey popped into my mind immediately. My number three, uh, we're going back a bit here. This was June 15th, 1977, and it became known as the Midnight Massacre when uh, the Mets traded away both Tom Seaver and Dave Kingman. Uh, Seaver went to the Reds for, brace yourself, Pat Zachary, Doug Flynn, Steve Henderson, and Dan Norman. Yeah, I don't know those guys either. And then Dave Danny Kingman. Norman. Went, Just kidding. I, know, I have no the, fucking clue who that is. <laughs> and uh, Dave Kingman went to the Padres for Paul Siebert, who, and believe it or not, a young Bobby Valentine, who was a utility player back then. But yeah, apparently Seaver had been having friction with uh, Mets chairman Donald Grant, and uh, it came to a head a couple weeks after Joe Torre became the manager. They dumped everybody. It it was the start of Shea being known as Grant's tomb for Donald Grant after a while. And there's a misconception here. The last point on this, a lot of people think that the most Metzian thing, like it was kicked off with 120 losses in 1962. No, no, no. That was just bad luck. That was this. The Midnight Massacre was the first truly like, oh, shit, what are they doing? And it created the pattern that the Wilpons then accelerated years later. Oof. That's really going to be the reaction just after all these things. So DJ Bingington, you might just want to splice that clip of me going oof and just play it after every single just one of over these. over and over. <laughs> all right, so my number two, we're going to stay in 2017. It was a magical year over in Queens. That same year, Syndergaard, he was having some, I think it was some shoulder issues early in the season in April. He missed a start, and then the Mets were suggesting that he get an MRI, and Syndergaard said no, quote, I think I know my body best. I'm in tune with my body. He then started against the Nationals. He came out in the second inning of the game. He had a torn labrum in his shoulder. Oof. So the most bets about that is the fact that this guy refuses the MRI. And of course, just like any other employer, the Mets can't make him get an MRI. These, they, they don't own these guys like that. So he doesn't have to. But the fact that the Mets then let him play and let him start and then he, of course, was injured because he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He's not a doctor. He is trying to fight through the pain. And then he ends up blowing out his shoulder and then is done for the season. It was just so Mets, especially because he was only like 24. It's like, you guys 
don't have control over this guy, he's fucking making league minimum for Christ's sake. Yeah, the reaction is, I'm not doing the MRI. Okay. Like, what? Yeah, okay, here's the ball. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that's a bad one. All right, so my number Oof. two. Let, let me set a scene for you here, Em. It's June 17th, 2008. It's Anaheim, California. 3.15 in the morning. The Mets have just beat the Angels 9-6. to They're on the first game of a six-game road trip. What do you think happened next? I'll tell you what happened next. They fired their manager. Inconceivable! Willie Randolph got fired unceremoniously in the middle of the night at the after the first game of a road trip. Granted, the Mets weren't doing well that year. Randolph was on the hot seat. But again, it comes down to even just on the most superficial level of optics. Wait till you come home. Do it before you do it before the guy takes a plane to California for a week. Uh, do it after a loss. Like there's so many things they could have done differently. And Willie Randolph, I, I enjoyed watching him as a manager. He did not deserve that kind of disrespect. Like nobody really does. But like my God, man. Like uh, it's like the checklist of like how can we make this look bad? And they checked every single box. It was it was the Midnight Massacre 2.0. I'm just like picturing Willie Randolph, like tears filling his eyes, like being dropped off on the curb at LAX and just like having to book his own flight, fumbling through his wallet. Like, uh, I'm sorry, I, I just I just got fired. Uh, and they're just like, sir, calm down. We'll get you home. Don't worry. Dude, you need to talk to someone. <laughs> being escorted on the plane first. He's got like the, the tab like stuck to his jacket like he's a latchkey kid. <laughs> All right. So my number one and this. I was along for this ride because, as everyone knows, listening, I get my balls busted by my friends on Yankees Twitter about being a Mets fan. 2015 was an exciting run. The Yankees didn't do shit. And the Mets were obviously going deep into the playoffs. And like John explained earlier, the vast majority of my family and friends are Mets fans. So we were enjoying the playoffs. That is, of course, until the most Mets moment happened in Game 5 of the World Series, Matt Harvey was pitching a gem. Mets were winning 2 nothing. They were going to bring this series back to Kansas City for Game 6. And going into the ninth inning, Collins wanted to go to the pen, but Harvey, the dark knight, the competitor, he fought tooth and nail. You, they, you could see the cameras cutting to the dugout and the two of them arguing because he wanted to stay in the game. And Terry Collins, instead of being the manager there and insisting, no, you pitched a great game, sit down, let your teammates do the rest. Let them do their jobs. He instead said, fine, like as if this was a fucking Hollywood movie and gave him the ball. And then what happened? Harvey went out there in the ninth. He walked the leadoff runner. Then the next batter got up, hit an RBI double. And he comes out of the game after that. And then the Mets end up losing in the 12th inning. And the Royals win the World Series first time in 30 years for their franchise. Oof. And I think I told you my theory on this. Uh, one of the criticisms of Terry Collins when he first got the Mets job was when he was the manager uh, for the Angels, he lost the clubhouse at a certain point for like being too hard and that just like not getting along with the players. So he really went out of his way to try and be a player's manager on the Mets. And I think that was an example of it taking too far, you know, not wanting to be the old Terry, wanting to, you know, listen to the players. And dude, after a certain point, it's the World Series. It's the ninth inning. Throw in your goddamn closer. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go down that road. But real quick, maybe Terry was sort of taking a page out of the Wilpons book there, because one thing that we were talking about earlier is the Wilpons sort of let the players do what they're going to do, and then when shit hits the fan, they are like, oh, they kind of raise their hands, like this is not in our hands. The player made this decision, and the fans are like, hey, yeah, he did. But in this time, Terry was like, hmm, maybe this will work for me. But he's the manager, so it still ended up killing him for that. Right. You'd think he would have learned his lesson from letting Johan Santana's arm fall off when he threw that no-hitter, but I digress. He was so, like patting Harvey on the back with Johan yeah, Santana's arm. He's like, good job, yeah, buddy. <laughs> I love that imagery. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'll take uh, my number one here. Uh, I, this is my favorite because it's both a, a very Mets moment, but it's not like tragic and depressing. It's really funny. So in 1999, all these are in June for some reason. On June 9th of 1999, the Mets were playing the Blue Jays. It was 12th inning, games tied 3-3. Pat Mahomes, fun fact, the uh, father of star quarterback Patrick Mahomes, uh, was starting for the Mets that game. Or at least, I'm sorry, pitching for the Mets that game, rather. So basically what happens is Mike Piazza's catching. Piazza gets a pitch out. There's a runner on first, right? So Piazza takes the pitch out, throws the ball to second. 
The umpire who, side, other side funny note, his name is Randy Marsh, like from South Park. Dad, I like being in a boy band. I think it's interesting. Well, there's plenty of other interesting things you can do. Have you ever tried marijuana? No. Well, maybe it's time. So Randy Marsh calls, get a load of this, Catcher's Balk on Piazza, which I've, I've never heard before. Literally never heard of it. Yeah, so apparently, from what I'm understanding, it's a very obscure rule wherein it's a form of like catcher's interference sort of, and the end result's the same as a balk. Everyone moves up a base, uh, you know, the, the batter would get awarded first base. Bobby Valentine flips out, obviously. He, he was later quoted as saying, you know, I read the rule book all the time. I have never seen this thing enforced before. So he gets up in Randy Marsh's face, and this was the best part. He was, well, not the best part, but he was quoted as saying to, uh, to Randy Marsh, like, can I get thrown out for what I'm thinking right now? And Randy Marsh goes, no, no, you can speak your mind. So then Bobby Valentine proceeds to tell him exactly what he's thinking and then get thrown out of the game. So again, it's the 12th inning. It's tightly contested. As he goes back down to the dugout, apparently Robin Ventura and Oral Hershiser are waiting for him. And the way that he puts it is that Ventura threw him a hat. Hershiser threw him the shades. Bobby Valentine went over to the equipment box and he took on, you know, they have the eye black stickers. Yep. So he took two of those and he made a mustache out of the eye black stickers. <laughs> and he just goes back and uh, he sits in the dugout the whole time. And he, what he didn't realize was that the third base camera was on him. He thought that it was just going to be, you know, nobody would actually see him. But the camera was right on him. Everybody figured out that it was Bobby Valentine in about five seconds. And uh, he did wind up getting fined $5,000 and suspended two games. But well worth it for one of the all-time great images to come out of Shea Stadium. Where Bobby Valentine became Bobby Valentine. Bobby, yeah, <laughs> Bobby Valentine, yeah, noted Mets manager. But yeah, the Valentine disguise, because it has that lighthearted aspect to it, that's the number one, you know, quote-unquote Mets moment for me. Oof. Wow, what a list. And I'm sure everyone listening, you probably have some of your own That's So Mets moments that you're thinking of that maybe we didn't touch on. If that's the case... Feel free to call the Breaking Balls hotline. Get it in there. We'll talk about it next week. That wraps it up for episode 19 of Breaking Balls. I want to thank all of our listeners and our callers and our texters. Texters, we'll get you in next week. Sorry we didn't get to you this time. But anyone else listening, if you feel like getting involved, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. 631-820-7377. You can find us on Twitter at BreakBallsPod. And I want to thank my wonderful Mets fan co-host, and of course, our amazing producer at DJ Bingington, DJ B-I-N-G-I-N-G-T-O-N. And we'll catch you guys next week for episode 20. See you then. Misdemeanor on the floor, pretty boy, here I come. Pumps in the bump, make you want to hurt something. I can take your man, I don't have to sex something. Hang him out the window, call me Michael Jackson.